Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Good morning. You open up your Bible to Psalm 139. It's in the middle somewhere. Psalm 139. The sermon text is technically verses 23 and 24, but we're going to skip around a lot. It won't be a complete exposition of the passage, but it also won't be merely verses 23 and 24. Again, Psalm 139. Read with me. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day. For the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately, you woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. It's a wonderful psalm, a scary one in some ways, right? I've been meditating on it all week. I like what Spurgeon says. Anytime you end up preaching on the psalms or teaching from it, you quote Spurgeon a lot. He's written a great work called The Treasury of David, which uh, he just goes through and gives you his thoughts on the Psalms. and They're wonderful. If you're looking for something to read, especially married couples, I, I recommend it. But he says, like a lighthouse, this holy song casts a clear light even to the uttermost parts of the sea and warns us against that practical atheism which ignores the presence of God and so makes shipwreck of the soul. Practical atheism. In other words, with your mouth, You profess one thing, but with your life, you demonstrate another. This is a psalm you should soak in. Meditating in it is like sitting in a sauna, right? It's hot. The heat's purifying, though. It's refreshing, ultimately. But I want our focus to be verses 23 and 24, but we got to do some reading to get there. Um, the godly prayer at the end of this uh, passage is a result of David's meditations on the attributes of God. Uh, in particular, if you're looking for an outline, here's an outline. I won't follow it, but if you're looking for one. David focuses on God's omniscience, meaning God's complete knowledge, in verses 1 through 6. And then he uh, focuses on God's omnipresence, meaning God is present everywhere, in verses 7 through 12. Then God's sovereignty, meaning God has absolute control, in verses 13 through 18. And lastly, on God's perfect holiness, meaning his moral perfection, in verses 19 through 24. And uh, I would love to spend weeks parsing through each of these verses and thinking about each one of these attributes individually. 
but we're going to have to kind of skip through it quick, so buckle up. Um, in verses 1 through 6, David reflects on the wonders of God's complete and exhaustive knowledge of all things. That is, that God is omniscient. And uh, what, I, what stood out to me right away is I like how David applies the truth not uh, to things in a general way, but rather specifically to himself. It's, it's a very personal psalm, right? As he goes through it, O oh Lord, you have searched me, known me, right? That happens over and over again. So he's applying this, this doctrine, this truth to himself. And Spurgeon says, it's ever our wisdom to lay truth home to ourselves. And it is my hope that you will follow David's example today and think how these verses relate to you. It's my observation, both of others and myself, that we tend to forget that sermons aren't just for our neighbors and to those elsewhere, but they're for us, right? This is for you. I often hear people say, ah, man, I wish so-and-so would have heard that sermon. I wish you would have heard that sermon. That's what I wish, right? God has shaped time and space and history to bring you here this morning to hear this. Is God sovereign or is he not? If he is, you're meant to hear this, right? You're meant to be here. Now, uh, also sometimes when you preach sermons, uh, a lot of times people will say to the pastor, I wonder who he was talking about when he mentioned this or that in the sermon. I hear that from time to time. And I'll solve the mystery for you this morning. Make no mistake, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. Talking directly to you. The most dangerous way to read the scripture, to listen to sermons, is to do it for other people. And that's often our approach. If a pastor is faithful, every sermon will be prepared for a particular congregation in mind. Anytime I get invited to someone's house, they say, do you have any food allergies? I loathe answering that question. (laughs) But I appreciate the hospitality of the guest that prepares a meal just for me. How sweet that is. Thank you to you who bear with my many afflictions. Um... But a pastor does the same thing, right? So this is for you. That being said, I'm also fond of another saying. If you throw a rock into a crowd of dogs, the one that yipes is the one that got hit. So in other words, even though sermons are prepared for particular people, pastors are often surprised what convicts who, right? Uh, Not long ago, a couple years ago, um, there's this guy I barely knew. A friend introduced me to him, wanted me to find a church for him up in Indianapolis. So I made some connections, and as people do, he friended me on Facebook, right? The word friend means absolutely nothing anymore. A guy you met once for five seconds. Um, and uh, he, he professed to be a Christian, and I didn't really know much about him. And then he kind of disappeared off Facebook, and, you know, people come and go. And I, I, I posted something on my Facebook regarding I don't, unfaithfulness in marriage. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I get this long message from him. I mean, it's like, on Facebook, it's like that long. You know, and you're like, oh, doesn't anyone know that shift-enter creates paragraph breaks? And it's like this big, oppressive block of text you're trying to read. And he's going on and on. I don't know who you've been talking about. You know, I don't know why you're coming at me that way. <laughs> All the things I'm posting on Facebook. And at first I was like, who is this dude? Who is this guy? And then I, uh, I rarely use LOL because it makes me not feel like a man. Um, but I did text him. I did send a message, LOL. Jared, I had to call someone up and figure out who you were, right? I, I think you should ponder why you thought I knew what was going on in your life because I haven't a clue. I knew nothing. So sometimes when you think an example is particular to you, it's just God's spirit's faithful to work through broken preaching to convict you. God cares about you. Right, So this is prepared for you, but that doesn't mean that I really know what the Spirit's going to do in your heart. But see preaching as God's word to you. That's what you should, how you should think about it. Anyway, that may seem like a, dis- a digression of sorts, but we'll come back to it in a moment. Now, I also knew this fellow once. Um, he, he was uh, an American that had moved to Australia. He'd always say, no one gets me. It was like his refrain in life. And he thought of himself as like a very layered and complex person. Um, and everyone always misunderstood him. He was always misunderstood. And um, you could seriously, he could say something to you, and you could repeat it back to him verbatim, and he would still say, that's not what I'm saying, right? I, I am repeating to you 
the very words that came out your mouth. Well, it's the way you put emphasis on it, right? That's not what I'm saying at all. So he, he doesn't even get himself, right? And um, no one got him or so he claimed. And it's an obnoxious claim to make simply because it's rarely, if ever, true that, that someone's always misunderstood. And that really was the gist of his claim. More often than not, the real issue is that the person doesn't get himself, and as a result of this self-delusion, he cannot recognize that people do, in fact, more or less, get him. And that was the case. And that mindset is nothing less than the rotten fruit of pride. The reality is that people do more or less get you. People are not nearly as unique or complex as they think them think themselves to be. Regardless, there can be no doubt that God gets you perfectly. Maybe you can get away with arguing with me, but you can't get away with arguing with God. God knows you. He's searched you, is what David says. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and, and known me. So after a burglar breaks into your house, right, your way on vacation, he breaks into your house, if he's good, he searches the whole place and finds all your valuables. He knows where you keep them. After a cop pats you down, he knows what's in your pockets, if he's a good cop. After a TSA agent scans you at the airport, he knows the true shape of your body. After a doctor takes all your vitals and runs all his tests, he knows the condition of your health. After a hacker hacks into your internet devices, he knows what pictures you take and what pictures you look at and a whole lot more. And after just a few years of marriage, your spouse knows you pretty well, better than most, but not better than God. He knows it all. He's searched you. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing. Verse 2, he knows uh, when you sit down and when you rise up, all the little mundane things, your schedule, the chair you prefer, your favorite pair of pants. He knows everything. Jesus says that even the hairs of your head are numbered. And God understands your thoughts from afar. He knows your mind before you know it. He perfectly knows how you think and process information and what the outcome will be before you've even conceived of it. He knows what you find funny, whether it be good or bad. He knows what you find offensive, whether you be overly sensitive or rightly offended. He knows all your thoughts, both wicked and righteous. He understands your mind better than you do. And again, the gaze of God is perfect and inescapable. Verse 3 says, he scrutinizes your path and you're lying down. And he is intimately acquainted with all your ways. God scrutinizes your path. To scrutinize is to carefully and critically examine something or someone. And just let that sink in for a moment. God has scrutinized you. He's inspected you. He's examined you. He's weighed and considered you. There's no detail about you that's not known to God. He knows you perfectly. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. He knows every good work you've ever accomplished. All. He knows about your generous giving. He knows about your loaning out of your car to someone in need. He knows that you're a faithful intercessor for your pastor, friends, and even the lost. He knows how hard you fight to overcome your particular temptations. He knows that you refuse to receive gossip. That you look the other way when a scantily dressed woman bounces down the sidewalk. That you work hard when everyone else around you plays on their phone when the boss is away. That you care that he sees you doing righteousness. Others might not know about your faithful labors, but God, God certainly does. Every thought, every action, every attitude of your heart that you offer up to God in worship is noted by him. All of them. Not one of those delicious fruits of the Spirit escape his notice. He enjoys them. They're a sweet-smelling aroma to God. God loves that. You might think like you're not appreciative. People don't appreciate you. It may even be true. They may not. But turn your, turn your focus to God. God sees it. God knows. Right? You'll be rewarded, if not in this life, all the better in the world to come. Now, he also knows every sin you've committed. 
And they are numerous. He knows how you've lied. And they weren't just fibs, exaggerations. They were lies. He knows how you've gossiped, slandered, and twisted the truth. He knows that you've often committed these sins under the deceptive guise of concern for others. Just a prayer request, right? He knows about your drunkenness, whether it be from too much beer or too much prescription drugs. He knows about your sexual lusts, whether they take the form of pornography, a longing glance, inappropriate flirting, or simply an erotic romance novel. He knows if you watch Game of Thrones, friends. We're not supposed to get specific, right? He knows about your hypocritical judging of others and your smug self-righteousness. He knows, right? He knows about your fault-finding. You think you can find faults? What do you think God can do? Because he knows. He knows about your bitterness, your laziness, your breaking of the Sabbath, and your angry outbursts. Even before there's a word on your tongue, behold the Lord. He knows it all. You are naked and transparent to God. Everything good, everything bad, everything period, God knows it all. And David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. God's knowledge is incomprehensible to finite beings such as ourselves. It's amazing. It's even unimaginable, right? We can't, we have to use little, like like little pictures to try to grasp at what it means to know everything. Just think for a moment of how much you've forgotten, right? You know? Uh, my brother was, one of my brothers was telling me that, uh, remember when I lived with you? I was like, no, no, I don't. I, you sure? Because he has, he, has, he, he has legitimate brain damage. <laughs> so I thought he was making it up. And so it frustrated me. So I texted a friend. He's like, no, man, he lived with us for like, for like six, seven months. I was like, oh, I forgot. I'm only 36. And as far as I know, I don't have brain damage. Um, but uh, God knows it all. He forgets nothing. He knows everything about anything. There's something that's happening way out there with a quasar at the edge of the galaxy. God knows. Little thoughts in your head, every little cell that's dividing, he knows and sees everything. It's amazing. It's a mind-blowing truth that we can't fully understand. It's beyond and above our capabilities. It's too high. Spurgeon says, is it not so with every attribute of God? Can we attain to any idea of his power, his wisdom, his holiness? Our mind has no line which to measure the infinite. Can we understand any of God's attributes perfectly? No. That's what's so awesome about our God. We act sometimes like he's a Greek God, one of our own creation, one that we can fully understand. This offends the mind of the modern man and of the pagan who wants a God that they can limit, you know, using their own thoughts. God tells us who he is, right? in a way that we can understand. Anyway, what an awesome, all-knowing God we serve. Amen? Right? Amen. In verses 7 through 12, David's meditations on God's omniscience naturally leads into his meditations on God's omnipresence. He rhetorically asks, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee your presence? And the answer is clear. You cannot escape the presence of God. God is everywhere. Now, it, I don't want to go on this too long, but I should add that that's significantly different from God being everything or in everything. Right? God being present doesn't mean that God's like stretched, like there's some sort of substance or essence to God that can be stretched everywhere. Again, this is something that blows our mind, that God is everywhere equally. right? <clears throat> um, but that doesn't mean that the, the function of his presence is the same everywhere. Uh, when we start getting into some of this stuff, our thoughts start having thoughts, right? Like, okay, what is going on? Um, but uh, if you think God is in everything, if you've departed from what the Bible teaches, right? That's closer to pantheism or something like that. Um, God is distinct and separate from his creation, yet intimately involved with it and everywhere. All the creations held together by the word of his power. It's amazing stuff. But his presence is everywhere. Uh, He says, if you ascend to heaven, God is there. 
if you make your bed in Sheol, or basically hell, behold, God is there. To the highest place you can go, to the lowest place you can go. God is there. And isn't it, it, pro, um, it isn't surprising to us that the God is in the heavenly, right? That doesn't surprise us one bit. We know that the heavens are serve as kind of like God's throne room right now. And, uh, and after all, it is the loving and glorious presence of God that makes heaven so wonderful. You know, a lot of times when people talk about heaven, what's your heaven like? You know, in my heaven, uh, what was that show with Tim Allen? What's that show? Tool Time? Home Improvement. In my heaven, Home Improvement never existed, right? These people like tell you, that's a joke. Um, when people, I don't like Tim Allen, that's the whole point. Uh, but if you listen to people talk about heaven and hell, they try to create their own heaven. This is what makes heaven heaven. This is what makes hell hell, right? In hell, I have to listen to uh, James Blunt, You Are Beautiful, on repeat, right? Um, that is terrifying. Um, but no, no, no. What makes heaven heaven is God. Right? That's what makes heaven so wonderful. God's presence is in heaven. Now, I think most Christians basically believe that. They might need some fine-tuning here and there, but they know, yeah, that's, that's certainly evangelicals and hopefully, you know, conservative Presbyterians know that. But what I do think surprising to us is that God's presence is in hell. You know, many of us have been taught that hell is complete separation from God. Right? Well, I don't know if it's eternal torment or whatever, but you're fully separated from God. That's, that's really bad. You're driven from his presence. And, uh, and, that, and that'll be people's basic definition of hell. But the worst part of hell isn't the lack of the presence of God. Matter of fact, the idea that, that hell is ultimately the lack of God's presence is a myth. It's not biblical. The unrepentant will wish that God's presence was far from them. The worst part of hell is God's wrathful presence. Even in Sheol, you're there. In hell, the unrepentant are the objects of God's never-ending wrathful presence. It's not an issue whether his presence is there, but in what sense it is, uh, you know. So again, no one can escape God's presence. You cannot run or hide from God. You can't run from him. If you take the wings of the dawn, if you dwell in the remotest part of the sea, you guys remember when every week a Malaysian airliner was blowing up there for a couple months, and the one just disappeared, and, uh, and they had been searching for months, and everyone was like, well, clearly it's a conspiracy theory. How can something just disappear, right? And it was flying over the Indian Ocean. Well, to my shame, I studied history, which means you have to do lots of geography in college. I didn't understand how big the Indian Ocean was. It is, it is huge, the Indian Ocean itself is 28.4 million square miles. Now, that's just a number, right? But let me, let me tell you this much. You can fit the entire um, United States of America, including Alaska, in the Indian Ocean seven and a half times. That's how big it is. It is gigantic. That's one of seven seas. There's a place in the Indian Ocean where you could just walk. If you could walk on water, you still wouldn't get to land for, like, years, Right? And uh, no matter where you go, the remotest part of the sea, God's there. You can fly away. God's there. Even there, God's hand will lead you. His right hand will lay hold of you. If you say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to God. That's a good thing to remember. It's a good thing to remember, especially when you're tempted by sin. When do people sin most often? What does New Testament say? At night. Under the, under the cloak of darkness, right? Maybe you're peering out your window waiting until your wife leaves. I don't know. Maybe you're seeing if your dad's distracted, shutting the door, locking it, turning off the lights to look at something. Maybe you think God can't see you, but he can. God sees through the darkness perfectly. It says... And the night is as bright as day, and darkness and light are alike to God. He sees it all. You guys remember Jonah, right? If anyone can familiar with the minor prophet, it's going to be Jonah. He tried to outrun God. He, he didn't, uh, God told him to go to a group of people that he hated. 
Because those people kept running raids into Israel and killing people he cared about. That's basically what's going on. And Jonah's like, I don't want those people to be saved. I don't want them to repent. I want God to judge them. So God tells him to go one direction. He hops on a boat and goes another direction. And he knows when this boat's being tossed and turned that it's God, right? He knows it. And uh, so he has some sort of care for the men. I think he'd just rather die than preach the gospel to the people or, or call the people of Nineveh to repent. So he's happy to be tossed over, right? And a whale swallows them and spits them up on the beach of Nineveh. He tried to outrun God. You can't. And he, he knew that at some level, right? When the, the boat was being shook, he knew this was God. And we're the same way that we think we can hide things, that we can escape from God. God is inescapable. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So to the believer, this is a wonderful promise. Right? It's great. I'm the eldest of three. If if you're an eldest brother, you know that your younger brothers, especially if they're troublemakers like mine were, like to have their older brother with them when they're moving through parts of town where they've caused trouble. Because with me, they're safer than they would be without me. (laughs) Oh, our Lord, our God, he is always with us. He is always present with us. It's a wonderful promise. To the hard-hearted, this is a terrifying reality. You can't escape him. You will face him eventually. Why do the wicked prosper? It's because life on this world is like that. It's, it's so brief. It's like steam off from a, in a little pot, teapot. It just comes up and disappears. They only prosper for a moment. A day is coming when everyone will stand before God and have to answer. There will be no denying that he's the Lord of Lords. Now in verse 13 through 18, David reflects on the sovereignty of God. And uh, this passage is one that Christians should all be familiar with because of its relevance to the abortion debate. And I, I'm tempted to get carried away with it and talk about it. I just don't can't do that this morning. But uh, you should make yourself very familiar with it. And uh, because it, it's showing that God... God is involved in the knitting together and the creating of people from the get-go, from conception. There really is no other scientific or logical conclusion when life begins but from conception. Everything else breaks down into absurdity. But, more important, God's word makes it clear. And that's why you should be familiar with it. But we should also see that this text its, its immediate purpose is to tie together the previous two themes with that of God's sovereignty. God's omniscience, right? God's all-knowing, his, his omnipresence, he's everywhere tied together with God's sovereignty. Not only does God see you and is with you everywhere, he made you and did so for his own sovereign purposes. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God is perfectly ordained and ordered all your days from the get-go. He's sovereign over all of them. Not only does he know, not only is he everywhere, but everything that's happening, he's bringing, apart, bringing um, about for his purposes, yet without sin. And this truth applies every, to everyone, even the reprobate, that's the, those who God chooses to pass over. It's always, no one deserves heaven. We get there by grace. God is not obligated to anyone. God doesn't have to save anyone, but he has, and that's wonderful. But he does choose to pass over some. And Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made all for himself, everyone, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. So God's working at his purpose through everything. But for the elect, for true believers, this, is, this means something else. This should call to, remind, uh, to remembrance Ephesian, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Right? Before anything, God created works for us to accomplish. Right? He's doing these wonderful things through us to his glory. He has work for you. 
Jesus is always about the, the work of his Father, and so should we. God's made his children for the purpose of holy living for good works. Now then he says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Um, I remember once I was in the bathroom at Lawrenceburg High School. I was a freshman. And there's a senior. <laughs> he knew my name. How's it going, Foster? It blew my mind that he knew who I was. This was before I strapped on some pounds and became a pretty decent athlete. I was like a little skinny comic book geek sort of dude that no one really cared about. My glasses were gigantic. I looked like uh, like a Republican presidential candidate from the 60s. Um, nonetheless, he knew my name, and he had, had thoughts about me. It's, I, I was impressed by that. And uh, But think, God, God thinks about you, right? God thinks about you a lot. It's amazing. It makes him break out in praise. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. God has thought about you more than you've ever thought about anyone else. And believe it or not, even more than you think about yourself. He's a, he's a kind father to those who've been washed in the blood. So David explodes into praise, right? It's amazing to him that that infinite, all-knowing, holy God thinks about him. God's perfections and his attributes are just uh, moving David to, to worship. Now, in verses 19 through 22, we find a passage uh, that are scandalous to many people, including evangelicals such as ourselves. Hey, one reason I always pick on evangelicals is that Sue's in front of me. You know, any of you guys buying lots of Joel Osteen books right now? Anyone got like a whole shelf full of them or something? You know, I know you guys well enough that I, I don't want to talk about other people. That's, that's what good am I to you if I'm not helping you, right? What good am I if I'm not helping myself? That's why I talk about evangelicals. I'm preaching to myself half the time, just so you know. Um, but that's why I pick on evangelicals. Obviously, Osteen's a, a heretic, right? So, um, but, uh, and that's, that's easy. That's why some people always pick on them. It's easy. Um, Anyway, in verse 19 through 22, it's, it's only natural that David, after meditating upon and merit, marinating in the wonderful truth of God's perfections, would be disgusted by sinners, right? As he thinks about God's power and holiness, when he looks out in the world and sees the immense sin, the immense rebellion and denial of this truth, it would, it would gross him out. I used to take some illustration courses at Cincinnati Museum of Art, and we'd often draw live models. And I would never want, a lot of the live models like to come and, like, you know, look at your drawing, you know, and they're, like, coming my direction as they're trying to see it. I'm just, like, turning. I don't want them to see my drawing, you know, because uh, they only, they only kind of look like the real thing. <laughs> they only kind of look like them, you know, um, especially when the real thing standing next to you, scrutinizing your drawing. David has spent time basking in the presence of the perfect God, and he cannot help but see the stunning contrast between the holiness of God and the wickedness of man. That's what's going on. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. That I think we get. But what's scandalous to us is David's language and what to some seems to be David's self-righteousness. Verse 22, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Hate, David? Well, I thought no one should hate. And if they do, they should only hate the sin, not the sinner, right? There's a cliche you've heard a couple times, right? Is that not what we've all been taught? That we should never hate? And not surprisingly, some commentators and scholars, note the scare quote, scholars, uh, claim that David only got carried away here. It was actually being sinful, right? That this was the product of David's self-righteousness. And that's hogwash. 
That's not true at all. First, David isn't being self-righteous. He isn't claiming that he's without sin by claiming alignment with God, right? He's like, God, I hate the people you hate, right? We're together. He's not being self-righteous. He's stating that he has come face to face with his sin, and he has refused to make peace with it, unlike the godly, or the ungodly. The ungodly have made peace with their sin. David sees himself and repents of it. The ungodly revel in their sin like a pig rolling around in the mud. They enjoy it. David has turned from the way of wickedness to the way of righteousness. He isn't perfect. Who is? He isn't sinless, but he is repentant. The ungodly aren't. They cultivate a hard, hard heart. Second, uh, how does one hate sin but not the sinner? Just think about that for a moment. How do you even do that? You hate rape, but not the rapist? You hate the action, but not the person who conceived of the action and purposely worked to make it a reality? How is it even possible? Such a line of thinking requires a very odd understanding of sin. Sin isn't just actions. James makes that very clear. Sin is unlawful desires and attitudes. And those spring forth from the human heart, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin isn't just a logical inconsistent, inconsistency, it is a scriptural inconsistency. Uh, listen to the clear statements of Psalm 5, verses 4 through 5. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all the workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Are you deceitful? I have been. I've been an enemy of God. There it is. So what should we choose? A catchy cliche that makes little sense when it's pressed? Or the robust and challenging teaching of God's word? Now, perhaps this will remove some of the conflicting feelings you might have right now. Uh, Think on this. There's a difference between someone who struggles with sin and is at least open to repenting and someone who's stubbornly committed to sin. It is the hard-hearted worker of iniquity that refuses to repent that we are to hate. We also hope that they'll repent. We also call them. What am I going to do? I'm going to put Scripture at war with with Scripture? I must believe it all. And some points feel some tension. Christianity is full of uncomfortable tension. Why? Because we have finite minds. Minds and eternal truths are being revealed to us through God's word. But the, but the problem here is that David, the people that David are hating, the people that refuse to bow a knee to God and are flamboyantly committed to their sin. That's what's going on. This is what John's warning about, that uh, anyone that lives in a sinful way, that's committed to their sin, will not, uh, will not be a child of God. So this gets us all the way down to the prayer where David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. This, is a re- this request here is further proof that David isn't self-righteous. Right? After he's talking about how he hates those that God hates, he doesn't stop there. Right? He turns to himself. He considers himself. He knows that he still has sin dwelling in him. He knows he's not blameless. He hates the sin that still resides in him, and he wants to root it out. So he ends the psalm in the same way it began, with God searching. However, in the beginning, David just makes a general statement that God has searched him. Now, David requests that God would search him, that his perfect eye would peer into the deep recesses of his heart. Right? He wants God to search him. Search me, David prays. He wants to be found out. He wants to be exposed. He wants the light to shine on his heart. He wants everything to be brought out into the open. Half the time, we just don't want people to come in our house because we haven't vacuumed, right? Let alone someone to search what's going on in our heart to see us for who we really are. David's not interested in just keeping up appearances, David's not interested with merely the external. He knows what God desires. In Psalm 51, he writes, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. All these churches that talk about being authentic, but never talk about but the sin in our heart. 
Those aren't churches. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, right? Samuel's trying to pick a king for Israel. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. These are David's brothers. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at your heart, what's really going on with you. This is what the Pharisees of Jesus' time and the evangelicals of our day don't get. God doesn't want you just to look upstanding. That's easy. He wants you to be holy. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may be clean also. Now, is Jesus saying that for other people, or is he saying it for you, or both? How about both? But when we read this, we always think of, like, Pharisees, or, or, we, or we take Roman Catholics and plug them into Pharisees. Plug yourself into Pharisee. Plug yourself into hypocrite. God is talking directly to you in his word. How are you cleaning the outside of the cup, but leaving the inside of the cup undealt with? How are you not wanting to be searched and exposed and found out? David wants the inside of his cup to be clean. In other words, he wants the sin in his heart to be killed. David knows and understands the truth that Jeremiah, that we often quote, puts succinctly, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You can't know your heart by yourself. You need God. And God works through people. Just Type in one another, like BibleGateway.com. See, see how important the brotherhood, see how important the church is to your spiritual state. See how God works through imperfect preachers and pastors, right, to deal with you. Spurgeon says, there are sins latent at this moment in you, of which you have no idea, but it only requires a larger measure of spiritual illumination to impress and unfold them. You have no idea of the wickedness that is in you. You have no idea. David needs God's help to know his sin. He needs God to search and expose his heart because David's own heart can deceive him. You can be deceived by your own heart. You can think you're doing good and you're not, right? You can think that everything's good in this one area, but, but someone else comes and tells you something, and you're like shocked that they would think that. I've grown so much in that area. You need this, brother. You need, you need God. Here's the reality. You're, you're much worse than you think you are. That is the reality of Scripture. It's, it's a truth that builds churches, by the way. Everyone says, when you preach this, churches get small. Well, maybe for a period of time. But don't you like reality? Isn't it better than fantasy? Don't you like being really dealt with by God? God always builds churches like that. That's why we declare it. Not because we think being small is self-righteous. God's about numbers. God's about fruit. But we know this is good soil for Christians to grow in. You are much worse than much more worse than you think you are. Matter of fact, your life is a wreck. Your life. Remember, I said who the sermons for? I said it's for you. Your life's a wreck. It's full of sin, sins you aren't even aware of, many of which you are aware of and not dealing with. I think there's two possible uh, reactions when someone claims that your life is a wreck. First, you may think I'm being melodramatic. There is a strain of that in me. You know, overstating my, my case to make a point. Preachers do do that from time to time. But I'm not doing it. I mean it. It's true. You may have your devotions down. And that's great. But that isn't enough. You may have prioritized your life around church. Again, that is great, but it's still not enough. You may give generously. You may have overcome drunkenness, fornication, and a host of other sins, and all that's great. Maybe you're not the person you used to be. God is doing wonderful works of sanctification in you. Praise the Lord. Praise God that you're being changed. But you are not finished. You are not finished. You have a long way to go. You need to cultivate the mindset of Paul. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay a hold of that for which also I was laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as 
having laid a hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many of us as are perfect, mature is what it means there, have this attitude. And if anything you have, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal this also to you, so you can repent of it. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. But the Apostle Paul was still laboring away. And so should, be, so, so should you. And look, when you compare your life to Christ as you should, your life is a wreck. But God brings beauty from ashes, right? God is building up a spiritual temple through you. Second, uh, second reaction may be that you're just off- offended and think to yourself, my life may be a wreck. But nothing like his. His is much worse. And that may be true. My life is a wreck. I am not who I want to be. And the more I read scripture and the more pressure that's put on me in the ministry, the more I'm around older godly people, the more I reflect, and the more I realize just how bad I am and how badly I need a Savior. But listing out my sins... One by one. Doesn't make your sins any less sinful. This is what always the proud people do. You rebuke them for a sin, and they list out two or three you've committed. Now look, if you're married and you've been in an argument with your spouse, this is exactly what you do, right? You didn't do this. Oh, well, maybe I didn't do that, but you didn't do this, 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 and this, right? And then it becomes like this competition. Whoever can list the most sins wins, right? Is that just us? <laughs> so what? I could list out a thousand of my sins. I can list more of my sins than you can list. Right? If there's a competition, I'm going to win. You wouldn't believe the crazy thoughts that enter this mind of mine. You wouldn't believe how bad I need the blood of Jesus. I don't know that we'd want to be friends anymore if you knew what was going on between these two ears. This doesn't make your sin any less sinful. Take the rebuke from people. God works through the means of other Christians, especially, especially pastors and especially wives and husbands. Don't you know that your heart is wicked? Why do you so badly want to justify yourself? Is that the heart of David? Listen to Clarkston. Who is he? I don't know, but Spurgeon quoted him, and it's quite the quote. True faith is precious, just so you know. I'm tying up. I didn't put in conclusion. I should. Um, True faith is precious. It's like gold. It will endure a trial. Presumption is but a counterfeit and cannot abide to be tried. 1 Peter 1.7. A true believer fears no trial. Remember, David says, try me. He is willing to be tried by God. He's willing to have his faith tried by others. He shuns not the touchstone. He's much in testing himself. He would not take anything upon trust, especially that which is of such moment. He's willing to hear the worst as well as the best. That preaching pleases him best, which is most searching and distinguishing. He's loath to be deluded with vain hopes. He would not be flattered into a false conceit of his spiritual state. That is the heart of David in his prayer. He knows how easily he can be deluded, but he wants to be holy. So cultivate a knowledge of your sin. Listen to Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God wants people who know their sin. You should be able to list some of your sins out to someone if they ask you, what sins are you struggling with? And they shouldn't be like these general ones. Anytime I ask a young guy what sins he's struggling with, and we all know what it most likely is, but they, they always say pride, pride, right? Which is true, but how are you struggling with pride? You know, that's like trying to, you know, it's like running from a dog and like you toss out like a, like a little bone. Maybe he'll go after that bone. But what specific sins are you struggling with? How is God working in you? You need to know those things. 
Right? We want to be holy. We want to cultivate a broken heart that's broken of our sin and thankful for the Savior that we have in Jesus Christ. Why do you need the cross if you can't think of sins? Why do you need a, a crucified Savior, blood dripping down? Why do you need the resurrection if you're not a sinner? If you can't name your sins, what do you need the gospel? What are you doing in a church? What are you doing here? I hope you're here because you need it. You need God's grace. You know who you are. God has searched you. He's revealed to you what's going on. Therefore, you humble yourself before the mighty God at the foot of the cross and cry out, forgive me, Father, for I know what I do. Purify me. This verse, one last thing. As every individual must know his sins at some period, a wise man will seek to know them here because the present is the only time in which to glorify God by confessing, by renouncing, by overcoming them. Let's be Christians that are devoted to glorifying God by rooting out our sin. Let's be Christians that aren't scandalized when someone confesses sins to you, right? I've heard some terrible things, right? But I know who you are. You're me, and I'm you. We're, we're depraved, and God's working in us. Please confess your sins to one another. I received the wonderful, sweet forgiveness of God. Don't, don't hide up your sins. Let our prayer be, search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And he will. He will answer your prayer. He will lead you. He has led me, and I know, I know a lot of your stories. He has led you. Continue to trust God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that it's eternally true. We thank you that you won't let us be fakes, that you are real, and you require us to be authentic before you. We are naked. We are transparent. You know us. You're everywhere. And yet you have loved us, even when we are enemies, and have sent your son to die on a cross to make us right with you. And now when you look at us, your countenance shines because we are washed in the blood of your son. We are dear to you. Oh, thank you for those thoughts you have towards us, for how you care for us. Help us to never uh, toss off uh, the conviction of the spirit, but rather put on Jesus Christ. In your son's name, amen.